on the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again. I'm Jason Drury and welcome to a Cinematic Sound Radio Network interview special as we talk to film composer, musician and writer Brad Fidel. Born in New York City on March 10th 1951, Fidel graduated from the Barlow School. After college, he became a popular and progressive composer, and in the 1980s, he worked on several successful movies, predominantly in the action and thriller genre, and pioneered the use of electronic instruments and synthesizers. He began his career in film in the late 1970s and wrote extensively for television films and minor cinema releases, until director James Cameron hired him to score the science fiction film The Terminator in 1984, setting the wheels in motion for a successful career. Since then, Fidel has scored many popular and successful movies, including Fright Night in 1985 and its sequel, Fright Night Part 2 in 1988, The Big Easy in 1987, The Serpent and the Rainbow in 1988, The Accused also in 1988, Blue Steel in 1990, Terminator 2 Judgment Day in 1991, Blink in 1994, and True Lies also in 1994. His last major theatrical score was Johnny Mnemonic in 1995, and of all he enjoyed a brief period of renewed interest following the release of Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines in 2003, when Marco Beltrami wrote an orchestral arrangement of his theme, he has shown no sign of returning to the film music field. In recent years, Fadel has moved on to other creative areas, one of which is writing original musicals. His latest is Full Circle. Based loosely on events from Fidel's grandfather's life, the story centres on Sarah, a teenager who is stuck in her New York City apartment. She is so sensitive and empathic that she is no longer able to tolerate going out in public. She absorbs the feelings and thoughts of others so deeply that she loses control of her body movements, causing intolerable pain and embarrassment. The appearance of her mysterious estranged grandfather creates a possibility for them to work together trying to solve a mystery that has haunted the family for years and is the cause of much suffering. Working alone in his home studio, Fidel was able to assemble various recordings he had of the songs, scenes and narration to complete an audio experience of the show. When plans for this spring fell apart, including a trip to London for the premiere of his iconic Terminator score to be played live at the Royal Albert Hall, Brad Fadale had a lot of time on his hands. Quote, Stuck at home, I decided to take the opportunity to complete this musical that had been needing my attention for a long time. It's a project that's very close to my heart, and in managing people at home, experiencing it, really made the whole process feel worthwhile." Unquote. Full Circle, the two-act musical, was released on all digital platforms 
on June the 24th, 2020. In June 2020, for the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, I had the pleasure of talking to Brad Fadell via Zoom at his home in Santa Barbara, California. During the interview, we talked extensively about Full Circle, as well as his film music career, his work on the Terminator movies, working with James Cameron, and why he decided to retire from film and TV music. Also during the show, we will hear songs from Full Circle, as well as music from the film scores of Brad Fadell, and in particular from his two iconic scores, The Terminator and Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Fadel, tell us about Full Circle. Oh my gosh. <laughs> How many hours do we have? <laughs> it's a labor of love project. It's kind of shocking, actually. Thanks to computers, I went back looking for something and found that my first idea notes date back to 2007. So that's 13 years. And that's how it goes sometimes with an artist. You have something, a painting or whatever, and you put it off storage, and then you pull it out again and work it some more. So that's really what it's been. There were some issues with my original inklings that I had to work out over time. So actually, the time involved allowed me, since I did it all myself, which is not highly recommended. You know, usually there's someone who writes the book and someone who writes the music and someone who writes the lyrics. And that collaboration has a lot of bouncing back and forth. Not always easy, but it moves things along. When this was just me in my cave, I think that's part of why it took me longer. Though I have to say, most musicals that make it to the stage that I've read the backstories on take a long time. Not unusual for them to take five, seven 10 years, whatever. I know that the folks who created West Side Story started out with something called East Side Story, a completely different show about immigrants on the Lower East Side of New York. And it was on the shelf for a while, not working very well. And then all the tension with the Puerto Rican folks and stuff on the West Side of New York started to percolate some of the race problems, not totally unsimilar to what's going on now. And then they went, oh, that's what it needs to be about. So they always had the core that it was a Romeo and Juliet story, but the actual script changed dramatically as far as the characters. So I kind of went through some of that. I had a few different inspirations. My grandfather had a, a background in Eastern Europe, what would be Russia now, but was I think it was called Bessarabia. You know, that part of the world, the, the country names and the boundaries changed a lot, uh, especially uh, in the world wars and, you know, all that. So he had to escape from there and came to the U.S. as a young man and played the violin. I can't say too much more about him because it's a spoiler. There are certain things in the story. One of the main things that happens is 
that there needs to be an revealing of his past. There's a lot in question. So anyway, that was a bit of an inspiration. The other inspiration, which I think is also relevant right now, is my realization that living in New York, living in Los Angeles, not there right now, but I've spent a lot of time in London as well, that in order to function as a human being, we tend to close off our hearts, our sensitivity, our empathy, because you know, I lived in downtown New York. I couldn't get to an appointment if my heart was wide open because I was literally stepping over homeless people on the Bowery sometimes. I mean, it's not funny, but it is part of the human condition. So that was part of my inspiration. So that was part of it too. Like, how do I incorporate this sense that I have in a sense of guilt almost that as a human being, I don't really allow full, full empathy with my fellow human beings when I see them out in the world. So I created this teenage girl who doesn't have that shield, doesn't have those filters. So she's gotten to a point where she feels and hears people's thoughts and feels their pain to such a drat. It literally, it, it goes into her body and causes her almost to have these kind of movement fits, almost like an epi- a seizure. So she can't go outside anymore. So this grandpa, who's this mysterious guy who she's never met, who shows up, there's a, an underlying mystery in their family that they, as a team, they kind of become teammates and they're able to help each other. Now, listening to the show, 99.9% of the time, while the rest of the cast have spoken lines, the grandpa only sings his lines. What does this symbolize? Um, it symbolizes that he only sings his lines. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's not... I, I symbolize... No, it's actually, uh, symbolize is just not the word I would use. Basically, he has a stroke and he cannot speak. And this is a very true thing that I kind of thought I was making up, but they've actually discovered in the time since I started that there are people with strokes that cannot speak, but they can sing. But he can't even do it audibly. He, what, what's happening is the young gal, Sarah, his granddaughter's sensitivities have expanded almost to a magical level where she actually hears him, but he generates his thoughts as singing because the part of his brain that speaks is damaged, okay? So it's, a, it's, it's, a, just a, it's kind of a logistic challenge more than a, a symbolic one. I mean, I could write things into it, and I think the main thing is that Jumping a generation, Sarah's dad, who's very angry at her grandfather, which is why she's never met the grandfather, he's been estranged, cannot hear him. There are certain family issues that being too close to it and being impacted by it directly, the father just feels his anger. He can't even hear what the grandfather has to say. So in a sense, okay, I could say that's the symbolism of it. The symbolism is that this young, sensitive girl from the next generation is able to hear what the guy's son cannot hear. Plus, I have to say, I love musicals, and I like a lot of opera, but sometimes sitting in an opera or anything that's completely sung through... I get a little burnt out on everybody singing melodically all the things that they need to say. 
So I thought, what a fun thing maybe to have, in a sense, one character who's in an opera. I mean, all he does is sing, but he's interacting with other people who speak and sing, but they speak often. So weaving that together actually tickled my creative juices a bit. And I'm hoping that, you know, there's some moments that I think it works really interestingly to have one person only singing their thoughts and feelings and the other person responding with speaking. Grandpa, I'm confused. They said you couldn't talk. So who's talking? And since I'm not talking, how would you happen to know what it is I'm not saying? Oh boy, now this is great. What is so great? I can hear you, Grandpa, loud and clear. I don't understand. I can hear you, Grandpa, something I should tell you about myself, I'm kind of weird. I feel things and see things that no one else does. It's really weird. You mean that you're hearing my thoughts? Kind of, I guess. Aaron looks off into the distance. Flashes of a campfire, a close-up of a beautiful girl smiling. I think I knew someone who was like you. Like me? A memory up from the dark. Gone now. It's gone now. Oh, Grandpa, please try to remember. It's probably nothing. Just that extra blood in my head. It's important to me. I want to know all about you. I'm not sure how I feel about someone hearing my thoughts this way. Hearing all my thoughts this way. What do the other characters in the production represent? No, I mean, they are somewhat stereotypical. A mom and dad that aren't getting along. There's a lot of tension. And a young nerdy kid who comes in as the tutor. And what they're representing for me is just different ways that humans are. And I guess they say in psychoanalysis that in your dreams every character in your dream is actually you or some part of you if in a sense i i say for the purpose of answering your question that all the characters represent some aspect of myself i see that in other words so sarah is overly sensitive that can be me I've had to learn how to deal with that, especially, as I said, being out in the world and seeing things that are pretty horrific and being able to move on to do what I need to do in the world. The grandfather who has a trouble being heard, I think we all have problems sometimes where we're feeling something and we aren't able to express it in a way that other people understand what's going on with us. So his inability to speak could be that part of me, which I think all, I'm hoping all these things are universal to some degree. Yes, I'm partially a nerd and want to use reason and logic to keep myself away from my painful feelings, try to think myself out of my feelings instead of going through the feelings. So Dennis, the love interest in the story, that's who he is. Anyway, I'm not going to do it for every character, but you get the idea. You know, mom and dad each have some aspects. Mom, Judy, was a 
people pleaser and is in transition into not being so. So it's hard for her husband, Brian, to accept that. Brian is someone that just can't forgive and holds on to his anger, uh, which is really makes him suffer, actually, and his family suffer. So I guess that's it. As you have said, you've spent a number of years working on Full Circle. What was the position it was in before lockdown? And how much work did you have to do during lockdown to complete it? Yeah, so um, what had happened, I won't give you the whole chronology, but I'd been developing the project over time. As I developed things, I would bring in the characters. Luckily, they consistently were available, though sometimes I had to wait for them, but I wanted to keep the same voices. So I'd record a new song. I re- First, I, re- I recorded the songs, and then I realized that it was hard to get everybody together to do what's called a staged reading, and a staged reading is often just a solo piano in for a musical, a solo piano accompanist, the cast members just reading their scripts, and usually a narrator who's reading the stage directions. So I wanted to approximate that so I could get it out to people who might be interested in getting it on its feet, producers, directors, whatever. So I'd been in that process off and on for years and most recently recorded the dialogue when I realized I couldn't really get a stage reading logistically to happen. So I had everything, but it wasn't all cut together in the most recent version. So when the pandemic happened, I could sit alone and I didn't have to do any new recording, which made it all possible because nobody would want to sit in a room with me at that point and be singing which, without a mask, which is one of the most dangerous things you could do, it's been proven. So I had all the elements. The main thing I had to do was I had to take I realized when I wanted to share this with people during the pandemic because Broadway was closed, I said, oh, they'll, they can listen to this new musical in the safety of their home. So one of the main things was that asking people to do that, like an old radio drama, to sit without any visuals and use their imagination to fill in the blanks, which I happen to enjoy. I know a lot of people now used to a lot of different stimulus. It might be a bit of a challenge for the attention span, but I'm hoping people will do it. Bottom line was, to help with that, I orchestrated it in my studio with various orchestral samples and all that, but I enriched the sound with instrumental sounds so it would be a little bit fuller in that listening experience. Well, listening to it for me reminds me in some ways of the old Orson Welles Mercury fit on the air plays he used to do in the 1930s, particularly one most remembered is his War of the Worlds adaptation. I love that stuff. You know, if I'm driving in the car, if I can find it or if I have it, I'd way more like to listen to something like that than music, actually. I like hearing spoken word. And yeah, it's exactly that. And someone said, oh, this is a new way of doing things. I said, no, there's nothing new. This is a very old way of doing things. <laughs> really, they're the only... New thing about it is that I did it digitally and was able to cut together in a digital format all the characters who actually were not in the room at the same time 
and luckily the talent of my wonderful cast, they were able to pull it off, kind of like actors do for animated films. They all go in and record their parts, but then it all gets pieced together, and it's amazing when you have very skilled performers how well it works. You wouldn't believe what goes on inside my head. It takes all my strength just to get up out of bed. If I could just keep their feelings outside of me, life would be so easy. I'd be happy and free. I want to be just like everyone else. I want to see just like everyone else. I want to wake up in the morning and go to school. Walk right through my neighborhood and not lose my cool. My cool? What a fool. I want to feel just like everyone else. Learn how to deal just like everyone else. So tired of bobbing like a cork out on the waves. Tossed all around by everybody else's How will I ever get a life With all their thoughts cutting through me like a knife? My mom thinks I'm special, completely unique My dad tries to hide it, but he thinks that I'm a freak Even the doctors can't agree On this dis-ease of being me Dr. DePaul says I'm schizo with a sprinkling of autistic Dr. Hadid, sure, I'm borderline, paranoid, and very unrealistic. Dr. Pascal's fascinated by my involuntary dancing, wants to write a book because she thinks I'm so entrancing. Sarah's syndrome, defined as kinesthetic transference of empathetic reactions. Kinesthetic transference of empathetic reactions. Kinesthetic transference of empathetic reactions. Reactions, reactions, reactions. To be just like everyone else A family just like everyone else I want a mother and father who get along A safe, comfy home where I know I belong Is that so wrong? I want to be a nice, normal girl Sarah? Come on, it's time. Do you hope that one day Full Circle will become an actual theatre production? Yes, of course. I was kind of holding on to that idea. Um, I have to say I am around people sometimes or in my life, whether they're close or tangential, that are involved in theatre. My wife is an actor who does a fair amount of theatre. And I did a one-man show, an autobiographical show called Borrowed Time, that I actually did in the middle of working on this. And one of the reasons I did it is because it's so hard to get a show on stage. To find the right producers and directors, financing, all that is very, very difficult because especially in the digital generation, there's a lot of people out there that haven't The theater owners say getting the butts in the seat. You could have a great show. You could have wonderful performers, but the challenge is to get the butts in the seats. So 
That given is one of the reasons I'm happy to put this out in an audio version now. I've learned over the years that I, I think I'm, I have a fair amount of, I'll say talent without patting myself on the back, for creating. I can create things. I can create music. In this case, I can create characters and story. But as far as networking and producing and even directing, knowing how to take this show and really in a wonderful imaginative way, there's so much available now in the digital realm with projection as they've done in many shows now. So you don't have to have a ton of scenery. But one of the reasons I did borrow time because I thought this I can get on stage. I, I really do like to interact with live audience. And it's where I started as a singer songwriter many, 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 many years ago. But before I started doing film, I was a live performer exclusively. So I enjoy that. There's nothing like being in a room with people interacting during a performance. It's very inspiring and satisfying. And I'm not the guy that's going to get this thing single-handedly on the stage. So I'm hoping to have this version for the audience to enjoy, but I also can share it with other people in the industry. And I'm hoping someone out there is going to be tickled by it enough to say, I'd like to see this on its feet enough that I will dedicate some of my time and energy and know-how to get that to happen. Once I was such a good sport, rolling with the punches, going with the flow. Waltzing through all the crunches Omega to his alpha Never raised my voice Stifled all my needs Made everything his choice Swallowed all the disrespect and condescension How did I take all that shit? Oh, did I forget to mention Nice. I used to be so nice. Always a smile upon my face with a quiet grace. So nice. Kind. I used to be so kind. Always a sweet word on my lips. Giving helpful tips So kind Now something comes over me A thundercloud dark and rumbling I'm saying things I never would before Not worried what anyone thinks anymore It's a powerful feeling that I can't ignore I used to be so neat Always a need to organize My color and size So neat There's nothing wrong with living in harmony But the dust that we sweep under the rug is suffocating me. And that was the song Nice, preceded by Normal Girl. And earlier I Can Hear You, all 
three songs are from the new musical Full Circle with music and lyrics composed by my guest today, Brad Fidel. Now, Brad, I noticed in your early music career, you collaborated with Daryl Hall and John Oates. How did that come about? Well, it wasn't, to be fair, I did perform keyboards as a musician with Hall and Oates on a tour that lasted about six months, okay? I did not collaborate with them. and I did, I mean, in the sense that we rehearsed and played and I figured out what to play on the keyboards, but I had nothing to do with their incredible songwriting or any of that part. It was actually a very unusual thing for me. I was in my apartment writing songs. I was signed to Paul Simon's publishing company for a while as a songwriter, and I was actually a resident musician at the City University of New York for a while where I was performing music for dance classes, you know, just as a gig. But my main thing was that to write songs, and like every young musician, I wanted to be a rock and roll star. So I really wasn't considering being a backup musician for others. But a friend of mine was very plugged into that world, and it was very much simpler back then in the early mid-70s. There was a place called SIR, which was called Studio Instrument Rentals, and they had rehearsal spaces in New York City that had a little stage, maybe even a few lights, and just a big open space so bands would rehearse before they went on tour. And there was actually a bulletin board, and bands would actually, believe it or not, post on the bulletin board little pieces of paper saying, keyboard player needed for Daryl Hall and John Oates. Keyboard player needed for Bruce Springsteen, right? So my first audition, when this guy kept calling me and saying, Brad, you should go down and, and see if you can get a gig being the keyboard player with Bruce Springsteen. And truthfully, it was early in his career. I didn't know that much about him. I went down to SIR and now historically, it was an amazing moment. I jammed with Bruce in the East Street band for like 15 or 20 minutes. Clarence, everybody was there. Really nice guys. Did my best. We had a good time and I left. I did not get that gig. I imagine a lot of people auditioned for it. And I was not the one that got it. Call comes a few weeks later. Hey, these guys, Daryl Hall and John Oates are looking for a keyboard player. And they want someone who knows how to program an ARP 2600, which this friend of mine knew that I had and was using in some of my experimental work in my song demos and whatever. And uh, so I went down and I did that audition with these guys. They were really nice, whatever. And I got hired to do this tour. How did you get into film and TV music? Um, totally haphazard at first. Well, first of all, to go way back is I loved film. I mean, I was kind of a, a bit of an outsider in junior high, as many of us feel that way, but I wasn't in sports or anything. There wasn't really any great music going on at my public high school. I was My dad was a musician. I was doing a lot of stuff at home, but that part of me didn't really interface with my high school. I would come home kind of depressed from junior high and watch old movies every afternoon. Old classic movies they had on certain TV stations in New York. Not that we had that many at that point, but there might have been four stations. And some of them ran afternoon movies. So my love of film was huge always. And there was a point where I wasn't 
really making it as a, a rock and roll star. I was having some wonderful opportunities and getting up to certain points, auditioning live for Clive Davis in his office at a piano, things like that. But I wasn't getting the contract. Back then, a big label had to sign you, and they weren't signing that many people. So I didn't make the cut for one reason or another. Whatever I was doing, they, it didn't go over with the record companies to the sense that they would sign a three-record contract with me. Around that time, my girlfriend at the time, Connie, saw an ad in the Village Voice that said, classical composer wanted for educational films. And I went, well, I'm not really a classical composer, but I have great musical imagination. And I brought some tapes to these guys and I got hired. So I did a series of films for educational purposes, but each one had a little score and each one had a song, which was fun. There were little like morality things to show in the classroom about bullying or what it's like to be new and move to a new neighborhood and not know anybody and things like that. So that was the beginning. And I realized, wow, they paid me. Opposed to playing in a bar for tips or very little money, I actually got a chunk of money for each project. And little light bulb went off in my head. That was prior to playing with Hall & Oates. That was really kind of early. That was kind of hovering in the background. I still hadn't given up yet. Went on the road with Hall & Oates, realized being on the road was really not my lifestyle. I'm an early riser and no, nothing's happening. We didn't have laptops and things so I could be in my hotel room creating something. I just had nothing to do. I'd find the, the ballroom in the hotel and play the piano early in the morning till they kicked me out. So when I came off the road with Hall & Oates, my friend Howard Goldberg had created a little independent film in New York, a kind of avant-garde, interesting film called Apple Pie. And he asked me to write the score for it. So that was my first feature film score. And Daryl and John and the band agreed very generously to, because we didn't have any money on that budget, to play just for union scale. So there's a big dance number in Apple Pie that has Daryl Hall, John Oates, and the Hall and Oates band playing this funky dance music. So that was like the crossover.
And without doubt, your best-known work in film is your score for the 1984 science fiction action film The Terminator, directed by James Cameron and starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean. How did you initially get involved working on The Terminator? Well, a lot of it happened not right in front of me, so it's like second, third hand, but the story is that one of the young agents in the office of my agents, not the main two agents, but this other gal, Beth Donahue, heard there was this low-budget action picture that the director was an interesting guy, sent a tape of my music to him. So Jim said, Jim Cameron said later that he was listening to that tape in his car for a couple of weeks, and there was something in my music. Nothing was exactly like what he wanted, that there was something in my music that intrigued him. So he came and showed me the film. In my studio, uh, they screened it for me, and there was something about it that I'd been working on this personal piece of very dark music, and I thought, well, I said, you know, this isn't something I've done for a film. This is a personal piece, and I played that for him, and I think that's when the light bulb really went off in his head, and I was hired. Yes, when I first heard... Your music, I was amazed by all the mechanical clankings in the score. The It felt like robots and machinery completely losing control of itself. In What inspired your approach in scoring The Terminator? Yeah, it was just mad scientist in his lab, in the laboratory maybe, as you would say, right? Um, what The first thing I did was I write, wrote the melody at the piano. The theme is actually a very human theme in its own way. And I think the combination of that with all the sounds you're talking about is what is why th- that particular score, and again, without patting myself on, on the back, it's social media many years later that has taught me that people were moved by that score. I had no way to know that. The film, I got a nice some nice reviews on my work for the film through the media, but I didn't know that all these fans out there were touched by that music. So I think the part that really touched them, almost whether they know it or not, was a certain sad, majestic sadness about the melody. But then I'm thinking, well, here's this melody on the piano, very simple, but okay, you know, this is what the picture looks like and what the story is and all that. So I realized I needed to kind of find some sounds that I was hearing stuff in my imagination that didn't exist. Let's put it that way. So my test was to just play around until I, with knobs and buttons and real things, until I got something where I would go, okay, that's it. And that would get into the score. I mean, one of the classic ones was the clank, the metal clank. And I tried some early samples of anvils. And the clink was just not as epic as I wanted it to be. So I played around and played around. Nothing worked. Everything sounded really clinky, not clank. You know, not like this sound that I wanted. Now, you know, there's a million samples. In fact, my sound is probably out there and you can get it. But basically what I did was I took a a cast iron frying pan, put it in front of a pretty cheap microphone and hit it really hard with a hammer from the back with the open part of the pan kind of surrounding the microphone and it sort of distorted and when I put a little reverberation on it I 
that was it. You know, and I said, okay, that's it. So I just kind of did that with every sound that I needed. Like, what is this? What is the heartbeat of this intelligent machine sound like? And I just kept saying, okay, that's too obvious. And then came up with this boom, 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 boom. boom that you could be in a scene without interrupting the scene. It was just kind of underneath. And there was, when it sat by itself, it sounded too naked. So it needed support. So I came up with these kind of undulating presences. It's like like he had this em- this stuff emanating from him, this kind of vibe. Yes, you don't have to see Schwarzenegger in this scene. You know with that boom, 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 that he is about, he is very ready to strike at any time. Oh, well, thank you. Admittedly, I'm I'm to the left politically liberal, bleeding heart liberal, whatever you want to call it. But when he became the governor of California, and he's a good guy, this is just a joke, but but I, I did say to people when they were like, can you believe Arnold's the governor? I said, if I had any small part in that, I apologize.
That was Tunnel Chase and Factory Chase from the 1984 film The Terminator, composed and performed by our guest today, Brad Fidel. And on the second track, Factory Chase, featured on electric violin, Ross Levinson, who you collaborated with on a number of scores. How did you first meet Ross Levinson? Ross Levinson, and I, and I have to say something, he's a dear friend. We don't see each other much. We live in different places. And through social media and some of the technology, we've recently been able to connect, and that's been great. So I was in New York, and I went to a bar where an old friend of my family's was playing with a band. And at the time, I had a, a score to do about a graffiti artist in the New York subways. And I was like, how am I going to do this? You know, I, I I need certain sounds. Same deal like we were talking about for Terminator. I heard certain things in my imagination and I wasn't necessarily able to create them with the dynamics and human aliveness that I wanted. So one thing I imagined was this instrument that was kind of like an electric guitar sound, but it could just literally... In New York, when the, it's way noisier in the subways than the, the London tubes, especially back then... And when a, a subway would hit even a gentle turn, there was this squeal of the metal. They didn't have coated wheels. They had metal wheels. And it would come around a corner. So the sound of the New York subways was this high-pitched kind of screech of metal coming around a corner. And I thought, oh, man, I want something that can sound like that and then all of a sudden be playing like – because the, the characters were really young and edgy, can play this kind of cool – sort of like electric guitar solo, but not. 
And then I went to the, hear this band and I'm hearing these sounds. They sounded like I said, I was thinking, is that a, do they have, there's no brass section here. What am I hearing? I kept hearing all these things and not understanding where they were coming from. And then I moved closer and watched a little closer. And this guy who was playing this crazy electric violin and he had all these pedals, it was him. And that was Ross Levinson. So I actually brought him on to play first on this TV movie. I think it ended up being called Dreams Don't Die. Maybe it's out there in DVD or something. We just worked together so well, and there was such an overuse in the 80s of electric guitar that he was like my secret weapon. I just thought, man, I don't have to rethink this every time. He can make a lot of different sounds. So he was a great soloist that would add his incredible technique and sounds to my scores and bring this element of improvisation and liveness to the scores because synth scores can sound kind of stiff as we know so he brought the, the life and there were other musicians eventually I used too on wind instruments and whatever but he was the first guy where I just said you know there's many scores that he could work on, whether it was a score about kids in Ireland, because uh, then, then he could do the Irish fiddle sounds. You know, there was just a lot. So we ended up collaborating a whole lot. And then we became writing partners because I was getting busy and I would be hired to create the music for a certain television series, but I didn't have time to score the episodes. So Ross became, you know, I brought him in as a trusted collaborator and he got full screen credit or whatever for everything he wrote, but I would, the producers were coming to me, so I would kind of oversee it and, you know, do some little bit of directing and input, but he's just a really talented guy on so many levels. And the series was Midnight Caller? Yeah, Midnight Caller. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, he worked on Midnight Caller. It wasn't electric, a lot of electric violin in that, I don't think. Certainly not in the theme, but, but he was very capable as a composer. So he heard the style in the pilot. And after I, I think I did the first season myself. I don't remember. There were several seasons, but he did do a bunch of those episodes as a composer. Full on composed the score. The theme was by me. The score was by him. The key instrumentalist that I used in several other projects uh, on that one was a wonderful trumpet player named Rick Braun, and he played that kind of muted trumpet. I was, you know, very influenced by Sade and kind of different kind of smoky, jazzy kind of stuff that was happening at the time. Very different than the Terminator stuff. <laughs> Going back to the Terminator, I read that you managed to gain full control of your score back in 2016. Tell us the story of how you achieved this. Well, okay, let me, I, yeah, let me, let me get into that. Composers in Hollywood don't ever have control of their scores. It's very, very rare. You're thinking about huge corporations investing millions of dollars in projects. They're not going to let one of the main elements of the project, meaning the soundtrack, be controlled by somebody else. 
So when we sign our contracts, they're, quote, work for hire. So in a legal sense, it's the corporation that makes the project that is, in a sense, the author legally, as far as the copyright is concerned. Of course, I get my share of the writer's royalties and this and that. So it's not a financial thing. It's just a legal thing because they don't want me to say, oh, I don't want you to release that film in that format, so you can't use my music. <laughs> you know, they can't, they can't do that. So I never had control beginning to end. What happened was there was a group of people that wanted to make an album. They wanted my 24 tracks. I said, the 24 tracks won't help you that much because a lot of the score was created on my particular mixing board with a particular early version of automation. And you won't know how to make the cues sound like they did in the film without that automation. And that automation at the time didn't exist anymore. So I said, I really don't want to release the 24 tracks to you because it's not going to come out for people to hear the way that I created it. And they said, no, 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 no. You will have total overseeing of the process before we release it. And you will have approval and you can help us get it right. And the problem is, for one reason or another, and talk about characters who hold anger or a grudge. I did hold anger and a grudge for a while. I don't anymore. But the bottom line is, all of a sudden, the record came out and I had never had any part of how it was done. It wasn't bad. There are actually people who really love it. I, you know, There's parts of it that I find awkward in terms of the way it's mixed. It's not too far. They did a pretty decent job of approximating what the, the score sounds like. Okay, now go forward in time quite a few years. And recently, I don't know what it is now, five years ago, six years ago, Milan Records came to me and said, we'd like to do a version that you really mix yourself. And because we had remixed the film for an MGM DVD special release, I had recent um, 5.1, you know, with surrounds and everything. I had a version of the score that we had painstakingly done that it was pretty easy for me to use that as a source and fold it to stereo for a vinyl and CD release. So I spent quite a lot of time, but it wasn't like starting from scratch. So that version that Milan released really does have my seal of approval because it was my ears. So if you like it, it's me. If you don't like it, it's me. <laughs> now the following year, 1985, you worked on another acclaimed film for its genre. The horror classic Fright Night, written and directed by Tom Holland and starring Chris Saverdon, William Ragsdale and Roddy McDowell. Tell us your memories working on that score. Oh, so many. Um, Fright Night was, was a real creative highlight for me. Not so much, I mean, yes, the film inspired me and what I really loved about it, everybody calls it a horror film. And it really, in a sense, the studio, I think, mistakenly marketed it that way, the posters and everything. And they're horror fans, that's fine. But I think they lost a lot of audience that would have enjoyed that film because really it was a wonderful classic combination of horror and coming of age and comedy. There's a fair amount of tongue-in-cheek at times. It harks back to some older kinds of film that aren't just go-for-your-throat horror that, that really have fully developed characters and elements. It was inspiring to me. So I, I actually didn't approach it so much from a horror point of view musically. In fact, I've never thought of myself as a quote horror 
composer, I always just look at the story and the characters and try to help the audience have the deepest experience of what's going on. So if it's a scary moment, of course, I'm trying to create the most tension and the most shock I can. But the films that I've enjoyed the most have a, a real human dimension to them. And the biggest part of Fright Night for me creatively was that I worked on it in a way that I'd never worked before because there was a piece of technology that allowed me to take my acoustic piano and tie it to all my other electronic instruments. So much of that score, without even hearing these other sounds, they were being recorded. All I'm doing is sitting at the piano, watching the film and playing it like an old a guy in a silent movie playing the organ or the piano. Then later, after I do a piece of it, I would go and listen to all the crazy screechy sounds and, and rumbles and things that I'd recorded that were just tied to randomly to different piano notes. And then I would create this mix of, oh, well, that works really well there. Then, of course, Ross came. And given the background of vampire and all that, the, I thought the violin was specifically appropriate for that. So anyway, he, he came and did his magic on it. And when I heard the score more recently before they released it, and there may be some news on that one, we weren't able to find a lot of the original source material. So the folks that released the soundtrack CD, bless them, had to cobble that together from some very limited forms of medium, you know, of, of quarter-inch tapes and whatever. We may have found something if we can get it to transfer after all these years we might be able to release a new version of that. I'm speaking to some record people and they're going to send it to a lab and see if they can get it transferred. So there may be a new release of a more accurate version of the score than people have heard before.
That was music from the 1985 horror film Fright Night, with original score composed and performed by our guest today, Brad Fidel. Now, Brad, in 1991, you scored the sequel to Terminator, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Again, for director James Cameron and starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, Edward Furlong and Robert Patrick. What are your memories working on that sequel and what was it like working with the enhanced technology which you had in your disposal compared to seven years before? Well, it was great. I mean, obviously, the first Terminator was a super low budget. This, at the time, was the most expensive movie ever made. At the moment, it was at about $100 million. And Jim, I always call him Jim, but Mr. Cameron uh, would come. And I was in my little uh, refinished garage in Studio City where my studio was. And he said, Brad, you know, this is a, I've said this before, but it is kind of classic. He said, you're scoring the most, when the budget hit a certain point, he came in one day. He said, you're now scoring the most expensive movie ever made in your garage. So what had happened in the garage to tie that together is that as his budget increased and his ability to do these amazing cutting edge visuals uh, developed sound and music technology. It also developed. It was still archaic compared to now, but I was able to do some to match his increase in scope of the film visually effects wise and story wise, a lot more, heart in a sense uh, because there was this this young boy involved and of course the Terminator was friend instead of foe uh, Arnold's character so it shifted the energy quite a bit so I wanted a bigger warmer sound and I was able to do that by using some of the, the newer sampling technology and taking sounds of real strings and real brass and real instruments and manipulate them so it still was the Terminator. They couldn't be totally normal by my imagination. They always had to have this kind of, I don't know, it's kind of of this projection of the technology that's behind the whole story, artificial intelligence and all that was involved, which is one of the reasons ultimately right in the middle, we were still questioning whether to add orchestra. And we decided both time-wise at the time, it would have been a real challenge, but also technologically and aesthetically, we felt that what was coming out of my studio really did work for the visuals without the orchestra. Well, listening to the Verez Saraband release, I noticed that the first part of the film, I think around the first third of the music, is missing from the album. Do you know if there was a reason for this? There's There are certain things that happened. Make a long story short, I have my music in my studio. When I do a CD release, I am mixing the stuff that I have from my 24-track into a release, right? Uh, a stereo for release. As far as I can tell, because I put everything on the CD from my studio that I thought was viable for record. I didn't skip the first third of the film, actually. Um, there are cues that represent that early stuff. Now, this is a long time since I even listened to that CD or looked at the label, so bear with me. One thing that happened that I think is why people feel m music is missing is that as often happens with film music, when, and I was in a separate place than Jim, he was mixing the film up at Skywalker Ranch in Northern California. I was shipping tapes to him. The, the, the visual effects were coming in last minute. Things were looking and, 
editing a little bit differently than they had when I original, originally scored them. So my music editor was up there with the old analog tapes. We didn't have digital at that point as far as the, the film sound was concerned, cutting things and making them work. And there was a cue that I created that Jim just fell in love with. And it was um, originally, I think, scored for the chase through the mall, possibly. But it was this, it was the music that really reflected the T2, the T1000's amazing ability to run and move fast, right? Um, just on his own feet. And it had that energy. And I believe that Jim, again, this is where I wasn't there and I haven't analyzed this, but I think he took some of my cues and he kind of altered them through editing and whatever and took the sounds of the cue that he really loved and superimposed them on certain areas in the first part of the film where I didn't actually write them for. So it's still all my music, but I didn't have it in my studio because it was transferred to film stock and he kind of created these cues for certain moments that people have experienced in the film. It finally just occurred to me recently. I get it. They're looking for the music as they heard it in the film. And, and I don't have a way to recreate that in my studio because it doesn't exist on my 24-track master. It was created on film stock, editing-wise, in the final mix of the film. So somebody could, and I think someone might have bootlegged, where they take the actual soundtracks from the actual film and transfer those to stereo from the different format that they're in. And that would be the way for the fans to get to hear the music exactly as it was in the film. I have no, I have no way to do that myself.
you never worked on the Terminator franchise since the second film. What did you think of the films that came after Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and their use of your theme? I'm going to be really frank with you here, not from a grudge point of view, but I didn't really like the other films very much, and I didn't really watch them in, in entirety for the most part, you know? I can see from <laughs> how the royalties come from ASCAP to me, I can see that my theme was used. I do know that uh, in some of those films, it was hardly used at all except for the end credits, maybe. Most of the people that worked on those films were very talented, accomplished composers. They write well. The Terminator is a very particular world, so both the directors and the composers kind of went off on certain tangents that, I mean, I guess in a sense you could say they could say they have validity in themselves, which is, as artists, what they were probably trying to do. No composer wants to come in on a project and imitate somebody else. So I think the, the directors wanted something different for their different Terminator. Unfortunately, in the end, because it is a sequel, I think they were in a little bit in denial about what would work for the audience in furthering the Terminator. Um, and both filmically and composing-wise, kind of moved off in a way that was hard for the fans to totally get behind. So, yeah, I just haven't felt the need to really study that or listen carefully because... You know, it's just, it is what it is, and uh, more power to whoever's doing the best work they can, you know? That was It's Over Goodbye, and before that, Escape from the Hospital and T-1000 from the 1991 film Terminator 2, Judgment Day, with his new score composed and performed by our guest today, Brad Fidel. Now Brad, when did you meet Shirley Walker, and what, and what influence was her on your career? Shirley Walker 
an amazing woman who, who, who passed away a while ago. She wasn't an influence creatively, musically, directly to me. I wasn't even that aware, especially in the beginning, of her style of composing because her job in reference to me and some of the other composers she worked with was to facilitate a bunch of guys who didn't really know that much about working with an orchestra, both as far as the orchestrations go and conducting them in the room, to help some of us guys who came up not through those kinds of studies in a big way. She facilitated my use of the orchestrator to portray my music. That was part of her job was to be and bless her. You know, I mean, it, it was quite generous of her because she was an amazing composer in her own right. But she, for a certain period of time, eventually she kind of stopped, which I was really in support of. But she was kind of like if you're in a different country with a different language, she was like my translator. So she would help me translate on many of the big pictures. Uh, True Lies comes to mind. There isn't enough time for a composer to orchestrate. Almost every composer uses a team to orchestrate the music. Now, in my studio, I had a layout of the full orchestra sound with samples. So the way my music was to be, where the French horn was, where the timpani roll was, that was all there for her to use as a guide. But she understood. To give you an example, early in my career, I worked with a, a, another person in this role named Manny Album in New York, a wonderful arranger. And when I first played him the tapes of my envisioning of, of this score that had orchestra in it, he said, Brad, you got it. You're hearing it. You got the colors. It's great. But because you're playing on a keyboard, you have to realize, for instance, in this section, your French horn player probably died 10 bars ago because you haven't written it in a way that he gets to take a breath, right? So that's a perfect example of somebody who knows the orchestra. Now, of course, I learned that early on. And I did on a number of scores, did my, uh, my own orchestrations. And actually, um, still, I love those times where I actually wrote with a pencil on a piece of paper all the notes and got to hear the orchestra play, usually because the schedule would allow that. But almost always I had Shirley or someone else when she wasn't available conduct for me because there's a certain technique to help musicians through a score and it's high pressure. We really need them to get the cue right, usually on the first or second take because we are so up against it to create like something like 10 finished music minutes of music every hour or whatever it was at the time. So there's a lot of pressure. So I wanted the musicians to have the best uh, leader in front of them waving the baton and not confusing them as I might because I wasn't schooled. So Shirley was just an amazing contribution in allowing me to take on these big orchestra scores because I don't think, you know, I was not able to do it totally myself. Now, you mentioned Two Lies there, your final score for James Cameron in 1994, a complete contrast to your music for the Terminator films, with the use of a huge 110-piece orchestra, orchestrated and conducted by Shirley Walker. What are your memories of that score? Yeah, you know, it was, it was an interesting thing because the score was... I had to fully mock it up in my studio because we were on a tight budget for the size of orchestra that we wanted. And because Jim, during the shoot, spent a lot of money getting the shoot the way he wanted it. So the studio 
people said, you know, we'll go for this 110-piece orchestra, but you're going to be in the studio with James Cameron, and if he starts changing stuff and if it bogs down, which I guess they'd experienced in the past, we're going to be up Shit's Creek. You have to swear that you'll do everything in your power to not have that happen. So I had every cue pre-approved exactly with pretty much the exact orchestration that was what we did with the orchestra and surely helped me and it's and the whole team of people helped me do that translate my electronic files to these orchestrations and when you get in a room and that many people are moving the air acoustically it's just so exciting and so rewarding so that score was i think the best example of combining orchestra with what I could do in my studio. The sampled orchestral sounds are still in the score. We didn't replace them, partially because Jim Cameron missed them when they were gone. There's a certain impact, a transient response, to be technical about it, that the, the samples had because of the way they recorded, and things are a little looser in a big open studio. So I think we achieved the best of, of both worlds with the combining of my studio uh, recordings and the orchestral recordings.
And that was the cue Harry Rides Again from the 1994 film True Lies, directed by James Cameron, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis. With his new score composed by our guest today, Brad Fadell, with the orchestra conducted by Shirley Walker. Now, as I said, True Lies was your last project, Brad, with director James Cameron. Were you considered for any other Cameron projects after True Lies? I did meet with him on the Titanic when we had a wonderful meeting. The big thing between Jim and I was always that, you know, I would read his scripts or see his film and kind of go to the core of what he was trying to do and be able to reflect that back to him kind of intellectually, which is very different from the way I create music, which is very instinctually. But it was important in Hollywood to be able to talk to directors so they would relax and kind of give you some free reign. You had to convince them that you understood their films. So we had a great meeting on that basis. Uh, It was reported back to me through channels that he was very happy with the meeting. And then some while later, I heard that he hired James Horner. Now, I have no idea what was in his process for that. I can guess some things, but I'm not going to hypothesize about it. Bottom line is part of Jim's talent was that he knew how to cast. So I have to trust ultimately that he cast James Horner as the composer for that and James knocked it out of the park. And the other thing is I would never have imagined doing a contemporary song to that picture. I would have been very much more true to the, like, we've got to stay somewhat true to the period and all this stuff. At least that was what was in my mind after reading the script. And it ends up that Jim didn't think of it either. That was James Horner. He came up with a song, demoed it, presented it, and they put it in the picture. And I think that song helped a lot of the audience appreciate that picture and helped it commercially in a big way. It generated a lot of interest. So bless them. You know, I just have to say, hey, if you work with someone that you respect and they use you on three pictures and they use another composer on three other pictures, that's the way it goes, you know. Away from the big blockbuster films you did with James Cameron, were there any other film schools which you have fond memories working on? Oh, there's a lot of them on different levels where I I set a certain bar for myself. And if I got anywhere close to achieving what was in my imagination and the director and producer allowed it and it got mixed into the film where the audience could actually hear it, because that's another challenge. That was one thing I was really happy with on True Lies, because even though it's a very noisy picture with Harrier jets and all that, you really can appreciate the score. Jim gave it in the mix a really good shot. So I guess I feel that way about Fright Night, not because I think it's the best or even closest to my heart as a film necessarily, but the way I got to work and the Tom Holland gave me the freedom to really imagine this. Boy, if you listen to that music by itself, you realize it was pretty out there for the time. So it, it took some courage in a sense for the director to say, yes, this is what supports my film. So You know, there have been a lot of projects. I was very lucky. Uh, Small film, uh, uh, also by my friend uh, Howard Goldberg, called Eden. I really love that score. I got to orchestrate it myself, and it's very acoustic. It's close to my heart, maybe because I orchestrated it myself, but the film worked, and I think the music really supported it well. There's a lot of things like that, you know. Which director collaborations gave you the most satisfaction? Um... Well, Tom Holland on Fright Night, uh, the original Fright Night, was great. And that's always a combination between 
whether the director really achieves on the screen what his heart is asking for, because that makes my job way more open. If a director didn't quite get it on film, then the composer is put in the position of being this crutch, which artistically, musically is kind of limited, if you can imagine that. You know, it's not as infinite. So there are a lot of them. Uh, Uli Idel, a director that directed uh, a TV project called Rasputin, a uh, wonderful cast. Uh, that was a real satisfying one for me. And we did another project together called Purgatory that also... So I liked working with him as a composer-director relationship. Oh, there are many of them. Jonathan Kaplan, who uh, directed The Accused with Jodie Foster. He and I were really simpatico and worked well together, both on that and another project called uh, Immediate Family and also an early television project. Anyway, yeah. Now, in 1999, you decided to retire from film and TV music. How did you come to that decision? You know, that's a very complex question. I get often asked it. And my answer, my thoughts about it um, have evolved. I had a really good run. And from my first film to my last project was 25 years of writing music for film. That in Hollywood is a long career. Uh, there are some people whose career go longer than that. For me, something had shifted. And to be honest, it wasn't entirely my decision. It was partially the working conditions where I wasn't asked, in a nutshell, often what was being said to me is, here's my movie, do your magic. And then I would shine. That was, that's, when I look back, that's my best work. What had happened more and more was as I got higher up in the more expensive films and politically in Hollywood, you know, up into that higher echelon, what would happen is, number one, whether you were hired or not depended on the box office of your previous couple of films. So if you weren't attached to a commercial hit, it wasn't really about the music anymore. Um, it was moving up into that corporate decision-making place. Like, did he win an Oscar? Did the box office go through the roof on his last three projects? So since that hadn't happened much, and even True Lies, which was well appreciated, it came out around the time that Forrest Gump came out, and it didn't quite perform the way Hollywood was hoping it would. So that was looked at. I did a film called Striking Distance with Bruce Willis that didn't really deliver at the box office. So I think... I was told, and I think the score was very successful. I was happy with it. So it was kind of a mutual thing. I was being asked more and more. I would come in on a project, and they would not show me the film without the temporary music that they'd plugged into it. So that means from the get-go, I'm in the business of imitating something that the filmmakers have fallen in love with. That was never the way I wanted to work, but it also wasn't how I did my best work because my crazy imagination was kind of shut down into this kind of love triangle. There's the film, there's me, but there's also this other music that they're used to hearing that they're telling me they like. Or in some cases they don't like, but this piece they really do like. So I'm looking at a scene and I'm not thinking, what does Brad's imagination want to make of this scene, which is what I did in the Terminator films and Fright Night and whatever. I'm being asked to, okay, how do I do something that's original and me and doesn't violate the copyright, but imitates that other piece of music? It wasn't my strength and it wasn't really what I wanted to do. So I wasn't being offered the level of artistic freedom 
And I wasn't being offered projects that were really great projects. I, I think I just hit my peak. And for one reason or another, as Hollywood does, I wasn't hot anymore. So I was being offered less. I was being less satisfied with the way that I was being asked to work. And I think the work in some cases wasn't my best work because I didn't have the artistic freedom. So it was a catch-22 and it ended up being that the phone wasn't ringing as much. It was ringing with stuff that wasn't really what I wanted to do. And people that I wanted to work with weren't thinking of me, whether that has to do with partially uh, not being strongly represented by my agents. You know, there's so many factors. The end is it kind of dwindled down to a point where I said, you know, I'm done. If a certain project came along and the conditions were right, would you ever consider returning to film scoring? Um, I'm not looking for it at all. I, I will never say never. Could be somebody I really admire who really appreciates that way that I like to work and invites me to do that, saying, I don't know what the music should be. I'd like you to come up and propose and conceive what the music should be. It could happen. I'm also at a point in my life where I don't know how many years as a vital artist I have left. I mean, it's kind of weird to think that way, but it's true. So I'm thinking the biggest challenge for me is to create from the original seed to create stuff, whether it's music, songs, the couple of shows that I've written. And that feels like what I'm meant to do as an artist right now feels more to the core of kind of my teenage promise to myself as a budding creator, like this is the way I see my life. I didn't foresee my life to be supplying this vital element to other people's visions. I saw myself having my own vision, so I've really spent a lot of time kind of reestablishing that muscle, and that's kind of where I'd like to be. Now, talking about your music in general, what are your musical influences? So, okay... My influences are very wide, and they're not other film composers, really, with the exception of Bernard Herrmann, who did a lot of early Hitchcock stuff. I thought on his stuff for the Hitchcock uh, Mystery Hour or whatever that was called, he had low budgets. I think he did a lot of the early Twilight Zones. So he would take four instruments, crazy, you know, harp, timpani, and harmonica or something. He would set himself like he did in Psycho where it was all strings. He didn't allow himself anything but strings. I love the way that he set limits and then it sparked a certain creativity of working with those particular sounds. So that was a, a big influence on me as a film composer. But I was influenced by so many things. Frank Zappa, The Beatles, Bella Bartok, Beethoven, it, you know, just everything. I was just a sponge and absorbed it all. What music do you enjoy listening to? Yeah, what's really funny is my wife, my whole family complains that I don't, even times I really don't like there to be music playing in the house because there's always two things. There's always so much going on in my head and it kind of clashes. But also, uh, they've also proven with brainwave tests and stuff that musicians listen to music differently. So I really love to listen when I'm prepared to sit and listen. I don't really like music as wallpaper in my life so much. But when I do, I tend to go for Van Morrison, Aretha Franklin, Steely Dan, some of the new stuff that's out there. You know, just great jazz, Miles Davis, just anything but good versions of what it is. It could be Irish folk music. It could be anything. I just, if it's good, it'll take me, you know. Do you listen to other film scores? Nope. 
Never listen to film scores. That music, I really believe, and I'm always amazed that people listen to my music away from the film because the way I created film music, it was so devoted to supporting frame by frame the visual and the story that I almost, I kind of doubt its validity as a listening experience. Now, thankfully, the fans, the people out there in the social media world have proven me wrong, right? But I love to experience film music with the film. And there are some people who write John Barry, you know, have written beautiful themes and they're wonderful to listen to as a piece of just a piece of music. But in general, I don't seek out film scores to listen to. Now, before lockdown, you were about to have a performance of Terminator Live at the Royal Albert Hall. Do you know when the Terminator Live performances resume after the pandemic? Well, uh, the Terminator Live will go on. I'm 99% sure of that. Maggie O'Herlihy, who created this division of AVEX, the Classics International, whatever the official name is, that did Terminator Live, that did Titanic, that did Amadeus. Um, she's pretty dedicated to the project. They did have, by the way, three successful shows in February in Japan before everything shut down. They did two shows in Tokyo and one in Osaka, I believe. And this was going to be, at the end of May, the London premiere at Royal Albert Hall, which I really looked forward to because I was going to get to sit on that stage solo piano and play a little bit and answer some questions and then go sit in my seat and experience this wonderful, I think, eight-piece. I forget exactly how many pieces they ended up. This ensemble, you know, playing live percussion and synths and electric violin, all performed live. Uh, so I'm sure it'll come back. I'm not sure the exact venues, but when people can sit together in a room, I think it'll show up in major cities. And after Terminator Live and, of course, Full Circle, are you planning to compose more musicals in the future? Yes. Um, I don't know exactly what form it'll take. I think if all this exposure out there in the world through social media that I've been doing and that hopefully Full Circle will get a lot of people listening to it, that I'm that some collaborators may show up. I'm not necessarily looking to create my own story from scratch. Again, you know, if somebody has a story who has an idea to take some pre-existing myth or story and they want me to, to create the music, that kind of collaboration I am definitely open to. So I don't know what's coming next. I'm kind of looking forward in a couple of weeks as we kind of finish this promotional part of getting the music out there, keep supporting it, and hopefully people will listen to it. I need to kind of have a little quiet time and then see what bubbles up again. And what sort of things would you do in that quiet time? Yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a surf bum. <laughs> I uh, in leaving Hollywood and moving to Santa Barbara in about the year 2000 2001, I learned how to surf. And after being in the studio for many many years, I think I this I'm redundant to a Facebook post I recently did. There's a picture of me on Facebook surfing, but um, I just loved it. The physical challenge. It's like you write a piece of music for a film. And then you have to wait till the next day when the director gets here to find out if it's good or not. I mean, you kind of know whether you like it, but it ain't going to go in the film unless someone else approves of it. And in surfing, I love it because it's so immediate. The feedback is immediate. If you do it right, you're having a glorious ride on the wave. If you don't achieve 
immediately the wave smacks you down and you're, you're kind of lucky if you survive it. You put your, cover your head so your board doesn't hit you and you have this immediate feedback and it's been a really wonderful healing experience for me as a creative artist to have this other place to kind of test my metal, you know. Brad Fadell, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Before we end, can you please let listeners know where we can listen to your new musical Full Circle? So I, th- I think the best thing would be if people uh, follow me on Instagram, which is, I believe, just at Brad Fidel. It's F-I-E-D-E-L. Or go to my musician's Facebook page, Brad Fidel, my musician page. And everything's being posted there. It will be on SoundCloud starting next Wednesday, the 24th. The whole show for free, Act 1. Act two, That's I think it will be two audio files. One is the first act, the other is the second act. And you'll be able to find it on SoundCloud or find the link through um, my Facebook or uh, Instagram. I'm really, I'm kind of asking if there's people out there that have been inspired. They tell me, I was shocked, I mean, but they're inspired by my music. I'm just requesting that people have an open mind. This is very different than Terminator. But I'm hoping if they respect me as an artist, because I have a goal, my social media person and I, we have this goal that we want as many people to experience the musical as possible. So I just, I'm, it's kind of like I'm making a request that people have an open mind, kind of take the Terminator out of their mind for a minute, just say, I'm interested to see what this artist is doing all these years later and give it a try. I do hope our listeners do so. Brad Fadell. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I do hope you have enjoyed our interview with film composer, musician and writer Brad Fidel. I leave you today with another song from Fidel's latest work, the musical Full Circle, which was released on all digital platforms on June 24, 2020. This song is entitled Sick in Your Step. My thanks again for Brad Fidel for joining us today. And until we meet again, for me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening. Let a journey of a thousand miles begin with a little shtick in your step. No one said it would all be smiles, just keep that little shtick in your step. I wish that life were simple and I knew how the story would end But life is so unpredictable, that's one thing on which we can depend Let a journey of a thousand miles begin with a little stick in your step As you face life's daunting trials, just keep that little stick in your step This world will stop you in your tracks, paralyze you with dismay. One foot in front of the other, a little style to help you make your way. Actually, overcoming inertia can be a serious challenge. Serious schmerious, life is so mysterious. Let a journey of a thousand miles begin with a little stick in your step. Try if you like it. Instead of with all these smiles, just keep that little stick in your step. 
Life is such a blessing, it can also be a curse. Sometimes it seems the human brain was designed specifically to cause us pain. The gears that turn and grind and burn, the lessons we never seem to learn. Friedel, please. Let a journey of a thousand miles begin with a little shtick in your step. Who said it would all be smiles? Just keep that little shtick in your step. Keep that little shtick in your step. Keep that little shtick in your step. Thank you for listening to this Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I would like to thank Tim Burden for providing the bumpers and stings you heard in today's show, and David Cosina for writing Cinematic Sound Radio Network's intro music. If you have any comments, questions and concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Cin Sound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. It really does help get the show noticed and helps potential new listeners find the show. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.